Okay, so we've made it to the final session of our journey through the Gospel of John. Such an incredible, incredible document that we have. Just to start this evening with just a brief summary uh, of the Gospel um, as we uh, prepare to look at the last two chapters this evening. But chapters 1 through 11, they cover around about the three and a half years of the life and ministry of Jesus. So they really give us the, the basic framework of all that Jesus did in his ministry time. We find that John clearly presents Jesus through this period as being the Word of God. And this is the reason John gives us this Gospel. That Jesus was God manifest in human form. And the Gospel of John is that this seems to be this intentional defense of that fact. John's Gospel was believed to have been written right at the end of the first century, probably after John has returned from Patmos after receiving the book of Revelation and uh, gets back, carries on or resumes his post, pastor of the church in Ephesus. And it's during that time that uh, most uh, commentators and scholars believe that John was then encouraged to write down his understanding of these events. And it's at a time in the church when there's all sorts of heresy creeping in, denying the deity of Jesus. Lots of views and thoughts were starting to come out of Alexandria in Egypt, a home of the Gnostics at that time. And uh, Jesus uh, was seen by them as being possibly just a, a special man or somebody with um, some sort of gifts and abilities, but they denied that he was God incarnate. And John, as he writes his gospel, gives us an overwhelming defense of that f- simple fact that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. And also John gives us a build-up and background for the Jewish antagonism that we find towards uh, Christ as we go through, and this, this kind of builds up uh, really to uh, fever pitch in the Gospel of John. And that's really made very clear for us. John 10.33, we're told that the, the Jews had this real problem with Jesus because they said, because thou, being a man, makes yourself God. They had no doubt. And for people to try and claim that, well, Jesus never said he was God. They, they have never read this gospel because clearly Jesus made claims that only God could make all the I am statements. No prophet would dare to make such claims. I am the way, the truth, the life. You know, I am the bread of life. I'm the living water. Those kind of claims from a prophet would just be blasphemous. But Jesus makes these claims because he is God. And clearly the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was portraying and presenting to them. They just didn't believe it. Chapters 12 through 20 cover just one week. It's a huge chunk of the Gospel of John, covering such a short uh, period of time. It's a time we refer to very often as Passion Week, uh, and I believe it's uh, the most important week in human history. Chapter 21, as we'll see this evening, then gives us our postscript to the Gospel. What we're going to do is just start with a, a quick refresh, just go through Passion Week to bring us up to a nice place to, to pick up Chapter 20, which is where we're going to start from this evening. Now, the, the plan of Passion Week, you can see there on the screen, starting on what would have been the ninth uh, of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. On, as we get to the end of the, that Saturday, that Sabbath, Jesus ends up coming to uh, the home of Lazarus, Martha and Mary in Bethany. Uh, and he gets there and has an evening meal with them. The next day, the 10th of Nisan, for the Jews it's the same day, you see from the colour code, and the Jewish day begins in the evening, this is when their new day would begin. So for them the Jewish day runs through from, from sundown through to the next day. 
the same point. But the tenth is that day of the triumphal entry. It's one of the few things tradition seems to have got right. Uh, it was actually uh, on a Sunday. Um, this is what we refer to as Palm Sunday. And it's this incredible day where we see the fulfillment of the prophecy given in Daniel 9. You may remember back in Daniel 9, there had been this prophecy that Daniel had received from Gabriel, uh, where he'd been told from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which we know was given by uh, King Artaxerxes, from the going forth of that command until Messiah the Prince, okay, or the, the, we, we see Prince as somebody who's destined to be the king. That's not the way it, it reads in the Hebrew. Uh, it's uh, uh, Nagid. It's the, the, the principal one, the king, uh, Messiah the king. Until that time, and Daniel's given this mathematical uh, calculation to work out. So, so he knew he could work out exactly how long a period of time it would be from the moment that command was given to the time the Messiah came. And if you work it out, it's exactly 173,880 days. And you work it out from that point to the day Jesus rides in and to the very day that prophecy is fulfilled. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem fulfilling that prophecy as well as the prophecy of Zechariah 12 where he rides in on the donkey. The other interesting thing, of course, in that is it's the first time and only time in Jesus' ministry that he allows himself to be worshipped as the king. Up until that point, you remember um, the feeding of the 5,000. We looked at that when we were going through John 5. And Jesus doesn't allow himself to be. They wanted to come and make him king, but he leaves them alone, moves away. When Jesus did miracles, he continued said, See thou tell no man. Jesus repeatedly said in the gospel, My hour is not yet come until we get to this point. And we find it's in John 12 that Jesus says, the hour has now come. And it's on this very day, this fulfillment of this prophecy. Absolutely amazing, just the way these things fit together. The Monday then, uh, in fact, in the, the evening of that, um, the, the, the triumphal entry, uh, that's obviously we have the, the turning of the tables, etc., in the um, temple. But in the evening, they go back out to Bethany and they lodge there. Then the following morning, they come back in to Jerusalem. They pass by a fig tree. They see Jesus sees it hasn't got any figs on it, and he curses it. And then on the following day, again, back to Bethany in the evening, the following day is when the disciples notice that this fig tree is all withered. And uh, interesting uh, um, study around that in itself. But then we get to that evening, which would be like the Tuesday evening. And actually, I should also mention that the Tuesday is the day when, presumably on their way home, they're on the Mount of Olives, they've, they've left Jerusalem, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, uh, and the disciples talk about the incredible stones that are, are there in the building of the temple. And Jesus draws their attention to the fact that actually not one stone will be left standing on another. And we get, get this Olivet Discourse, as it's referred to, and it's where Jesus gives this incredible prophecy talking about the things that will precede his return. And the important thing there is that it's less than 48 hours before Jesus is crucified, and he's given the disciples such incredible detailed prophecies. Anybody, any church that tells you that prophecy is not important, don't go there. Because it's so vitally important. And if we don't want to be deceived, we need to understand how important prophecy is in God's plan. And uh, as I say, there are many people, certainly with the emerging church movement, that would like to just brush aside prophecy and pretend it has no value whatsoever. Jesus spends a large proportion, we read it in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, uh, although John doesn't record it specifically, it's a major, major topic that's uh, very important. When we get back out then on the Tuesday evening, they come back out to Bethany, and it's on this occasion that Mary pours this costly oil on Jesus' feet. She anoints his feet. It's at this point Judas is outraged. It's a year's wages 
this perfume that she had that's been poured on Jesus' feet. And Judas, the, the story goes that he's concerned about the poor. Of course, we know from the, what we're told in Scripture that he actually was a thief and wanted the money for himself. I thought it was extravagant waste. He didn't understand what was going on. But again, you see how close these things are. It wasn't, just a, it wasn't a long, calculated thing by Judas. It was just a spur-of-the-moment thing. He was outraged by this, this sudden extravagant waste and that Jesus didn't tell her to stop it. And it's only the following evening that we'll find that, G, that Judas then brings back this party of the, um, the Pharisees and uh, all the, uh, the Romans as well, and they come to arrest Jesus. So very, very short period of time between those events. We get on to then the, the 13th on the Wednesday, uh, and that's the day that's referred to as the, the first day of unleavened bread. Now, it's easy to get that food confused with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not the same thing. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be on the 15th. But the first day of unleavened bread would be the day that they were to remove leaven from their houses because by the time they get to sundown here, all leaven has to be gone because they start a seven-day festival beginning on the 14th going through to the 21st. And that's made clear in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 12 and various other uh, places in the Old Testament. This seven-day period where no leaven was to be allowed in their homes. Leaven obviously being a type of sin, and there's all sorts of models in that as well. So then we get to the evening, and the disciples have gone on ahead. They've prepared this upper room, as Jesus has said they should go and do. And then Jesus celebrates this Passover with his disciples. Now, again, people that have not really dug into this will try and tell you sometimes that well, actually Jesus didn't celebrate the Passover. It was a separate meal he celebrated with them. No, that's not what Scripture tells us, because Jesus said, with desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And Jesus goes through this Passover meal, explaining to the disciples that that which they understood from, a, from the historical perspective of the deliverance of Egypt was all pointing to him. Uh, the whole idea of the blood of the lamb. The lamb was to be taken, incidentally, on the 10th day. When was Jesus taken? On the 10th day. He was accepted as their king, certainly by a multitude of the people. And uh, in, in Exodus 12, we're told that he was to be take, the, the lamb was to be taken on the 10th day. They were to keep the lamb until the 14th day when the lamb would then be killed and the blood uh, put on the lintels and doorposts, etc. Uh, and again, this was to purchase their freedom from the slavery and the bondage in Egypt. Now that's the type, the reality is that Jesus fulfills this model and purchases our freedom from the slavery and bondage of sin. So Jesus celebrates this meal with the disciples. And as we looked at in the last session, heads out across the Kidron Brook, goes over to this place called Gethsemane. And it's interesting um, that Judas then comes back with this incredible um, 600 or so uh, army to arrest Jesus. Why so many? Well, because, as we said last time, they're expecting this political insurrection. And that's what they, the, the Jews were expecting, sorts of, all sorts of resistance. But it's also interesting that Judas, in a sense, wasn't needed by Caiaphas, by the high priest, by, by any of the, the authorities. They could have just gone out and taken Jesus. Now, we're told... They were fearful of the people, but they could have done it at night. So why take this opportunity that Judas presents to them? Why use Judas? Why even pay him money to do it when they have so many people? They didn't need Judas. They no doubt knew Jesus was staying at Bethany. Well, one of the interesting conjectures that's put forward by Frank Morrison in his classic book, Who Moved the Stone, is that they were waiting for an opportunity where Jesus himself would make it possible. They were actually fearful of Jesus as well. What would happen? What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus seems to set this whole thing up and makes it possible. He even on that Last Supper actually bids Judas to go and do what you're going to go and do. 
Through that night, we have these incredible trials. There's six illegal trials that actually take place. For a start, the trial shouldn't have taken place at night. Uh, it would appear that Caiaphas had already secured with Pilate the fact that he could bring this prisoner to them, this political prisoner in the morning, and the Pilate would be prepared to get up early and to try this prisoner. Again, they had to deal with this before they get to the 15th. And 15th here being the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And for our way of thinking, it would be like the first day off work. Uh, many of us will, will stop working for Christmas on the 24th and we'll have Christmas Eve off. But the first day, if you like, of our festival really becomes Christmas Day when that's the, everything shuts down and we can't do anything. Well, that was very much, although the feast started effectively on the 14th with Passover, certain work, if you read in scripture, was allowed on those days. It was permitted, particularly preparing of the meals and things like that. But by the time they get to the 15th, no work was permitted. So if this trial was going to take place, if this, this, this crucifixion was going to take place, it had to be dealt with very, very swiftly. And they didn't want, the Jewish leaders did not want to go ahead and arrest Jesus and then Pilate say, well, let's leave it till after the holidays. You know, because that could have caused all sorts of problems. It needed to be dealt with very promptly. And Pilate usually gets up very early in the morning and he, he can't, seem to understand what it is they're doing why are they bringing this man he can't find any fault in jesus and repeatedly uh, he makes his claim and obviously his wife as well has that dream uh, possibly prompted by maybe the night before uh, a visit by caiaphas saying this is what we're going to do we're going to bring him in the morning no doubt Pilate and his wife go to bed that night and she's thinking about these things who is this prisoner who is this jesus that's just conjecture but either way she has this dream and she obviously tells her husband which makes him even more uneasy so then Jesus is crucified on the 14th, fulfilling that model. The 15th then becomes this uh, feast of unleavened bread. And the interesting thing is there that Jesus himself said, uh, John 12, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Just as this feast is beginning... Jesus' body has been laid into the tomb. This feast of unleavened bread, and Jesus said, effectively, just as a corner of wheat has got to be put into the ground, just so Jesus was put into the ground. We then find that uh, on that day, during the, uh, the Friday itself, uh, is when we find that the Jews then go back to Pilate with this request, saying that, you know, we're concerned because we need somebody to guard the tomb just in case. And Pilate makes this strange comment. He says, uh, Pilate said unto them, you have your watch. Go your way, make it as sure as you can. Some people think that he gave them a Roman guard to go and, and look at this. I think probably from, from what's being said here, that Pilate is saying, look, you've got your own watch, you've got your own temple guards, go and make it as sure as you can. Why did they need permission? Well, because it was Roman property. Jesus had been crucified as a Roman prisoner. He'd been put in a grave, and effectively, it was Rome's responsibility, which is why they go and ask Pilate for permission to go and guard this tomb. And Pilate says... Okay, take your watch, take your soldiers, go and make it as sure as you can. It's interesting that did Pilate, even in that, have this, this wonder in his mind of whether there was going to be yet more uh, in this incredible saga. We then get to the Sabbath. Uh, we find actually uh, Luke 23, verses 55 and 56. And we're told, The woman also which came with him from Galilee followed after, and behold the sepulchre, and how his body was laid. So this is after Jesus has been crucified, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take Jesus' body, and they go and put it in Joseph's tomb. And the, the, the women notice where it's laid. And verse 56 says, And they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Now that 
Sabbath day we have there, the word in the, the Greek implies uh, plurality. So we're not looking at one Sabbath. There was two Sabbath days here involved. There was the, the Friday Sabbath, which was the 15th. Now, Friday is not normally Sabbath, but the 15th became the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a high Sabbath. It was one of the three specific events throughout the Jewish year where they had to present themselves in Jerusalem. Uh, a very, very important Sabbath day where no work could be done. We then get to the Saturday Sabbath. Again, a particular Sabbath where nothing could be done. It's your weekly Sabbath. So the women could not come to the tomb during this time because, or to, to anoint the body because it had been working, so that would have been breaking the law. For those that try and suggest that Jesus was crucified on the Wednesday... They have a real problem because if the Wednesday was the 14th, then the Thursday would have been the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They'd have then had all day Friday where which they could have gone to the tomb to anoint the body. And they don't bother. And yet we find on the Sunday morning they get up early at the break of dawn and go. So that's one very compelling argument as to why the Wednesday doesn't work apart from many other reasons. But um, we then get to the Sunday, uh, the day of resurrection itself which obviously we're going to look at in a second. Just to to make a note again, we have the Feast of Passover on the 14th. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th. And then the way it fell this year, the Feast of First Fruits, which was always to be on the, the day after the Saturday Sabbath following the Passover. So it always come on the Sunday and that's the Feast of First Fruits. So we have these three, the first three feasts in the Jewish calendar. And why that's so interesting that this model fits so well is because of what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says to us there, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Which scriptures? Well, there's lots that we could look at as candidates for that, but probably most compelling are these three feasts. Christ died on the Feast of Passover, was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and rose again on the Feast of First Fruits according to the scriptures, fulfilling this incredible model. And Paul says that is the gospel. You know, we don't find that what Jesus taught is referred to as the gospel, but that Christ died, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. Paul tells us that is the gospel. Before we jump into chapter 20, one other thing that's uh, so interesting I can't not share it with you. Back in Genesis chapter 8, after the flood, we read verse 2, the fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. Finally, it's come to an end. Something new is about to take place. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains, plural, of Ararat. Why is it the Holy Spirit wants us to know the day that the ark came to rest, this new beginning, if you like, on planet Earth. Why is that important? Well, the reason it's important is because when we look at Exodus 12, we find that God shifts the calendar around. What had been the old first month would effectively then become the seventh month. Uh, they were to have then, and we have still today, the religious calendar and the civil calendar. So when we look at the month of what we have now as Nissan, uh, in the old calendar, it was the 17th day of the seventh month 
when the ark came to rest, with this new beginning, if you like, on planet Earth. In the new calendar, that becomes the first month. When was the the Passover to be celebrated? In the first month. What day was it that the resurrection occurred? On the 17th. Incredible design. Again, the Holy Spirit just anticipating in advance this new beginning, uh, this new life through Christ. Okay, so let's now, with a bit of background, move on into chapter 20. And we read, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Okay, so Luke's going to add also that Mary, the mother of James, and Joanna were also there. And Mark will tell us that Salome was there as well. So is there a discrepancy? Do we have a problem there? We get different kind of information from the Gospels. Well, not at all. Actually, these things actually attest to the historical accuracy. Let me just give you a little uh, personal example of this. When I was younger, uh, I can just about remember back that far, um, we were at a, a youth retreat one weekend. And we were sitting down. Uh, in this kind of classroom, and we were just getting ready. We had a mixture of games and some study sessions. And we just sat down for a, a study session, and all of a sudden, uh, we, we kind of all had our notepads out. We weren't sure what we were going to be doing that morning. And one of the other youth leaders came in and called the youth leader that was supposed to be teaching us, and they went aside to the corner, and they were like whispering to each other. We knew something was up, and they could see from the, the reaction that it was something quite serious. And the leader that was doing the session came back and said, Look, I'm really sorry, I'm just going to have to go for a minute. It appears that another group, youth group have just arrived. They've booked the centre for this weekend. And apparently they're saying that we've got to go. Well, you can imagine a bunch of, yeah, well, we'll go out and see them. You know, <laughs> we'll sort them out in love, in love. Um, so we, we were kind of a lot, we, the, the, the conversation sort of got quite, quite uh, frantic and heated and excited amongst ourselves. And then for about five minutes, the youth leader's gone. Eventually they came back. And they said, no, look, I'm really sorry. They, they said that they pre-booked it. We've checked. They actually booked it before we had. And we've got to, we've got to leave them back up. And we were just like, we were, we were mad. And then they just said, okay, shh, 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 right. There is nobody else there. That was an exercise. I want you to get into four groups, which we then did, and write an account of what has just happened. So we did. And we got into four groups, and we just wrote an account of everything that just happened. And then afterwards, one nominated person of the group went and presented that account. And the first group got up and they presented their account. And we look at it and think, hey, no, surely not. But it was. All those things had happened, but we hadn't seen them. We'd missed certain key elements of what happened. We presented our case and we got all the things that we thought were important. And they were different from the first. And then the third and the fourth did the same. And all all those versions of the same event were all slightly different. None of them actually contradicted each other. But on face value, there were some discrepancies. But when you put it all together, it created a big picture. Every single thing that was recorded happened. But certain people observed different things. And that's what we find in the Gospels. That's why when we put the Gospels together, we get this complete picture. With that said, what I'd like to do is to try and take you through as the Gospels present this whole uh, situation at the tomb. Because when you read the different accounts, it can be quite, you know, how does this work? How does it fit together? Well, this is how I think looking at these scriptures, they fit together. We start in Mark, and I'm just going to read this through, and then I'm going to comment, comment on it at the end. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices, that they may come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre, and at the rising of the sun, and they said amongst themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? And to Matthew we read, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. 
His countenance was like lightning and his raiment as white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers, that's the guards, did shake and become as dead men. And when they looked, this is Mark again, when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was great. Back into Matthew. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And Luke says, And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. Back into Mark. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where he lay. But go your way and tell his disciples, and Peter, that he goes, for, goes before you into Galilee. There you shall see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, and they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek you the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke unto you when he was yet in Galilee? Saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulchre, and told all these things unto the eleven and to the rest. She runneth and come to Simon Peter, and that's she being Mary. Uh, remember as well, Mary would have been younger than the other women, which is presumably why she gets there first. Then she runneth and coming to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things to the apostles. Presumably the other women arrive as they get there. And the words and their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, back into John's Gospel now, and came forth to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes laying, yet uh, went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeing, seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without the sepulchre, weeping, And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre. And seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord. I know not where they have laid him. And when she had said thus, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I am ascended 
I ascend to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. And as they went to tell his disciples, Paul Jesus met them. Now I see that, first of all, Jesus appears to Mary, but then he appears to the others en route. Presumably Mary catches them up. I'll comment again in a moment. And as they went to tell his disciples, Paul Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. They said, uh, Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Back into John's Gospel. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. So that's kind of the whole narrative. It kind of fills in some of the gaps. When you look at one account, you don't get all of that. When you look at it together, it flows flows beautifully together. Now there are a few what may appear to be discrepancies. Let me try and unravel just a few of the key points here. The women then were the first to the guarded tomb. It's important to remember that they had no idea there was a guard there. You see, for this Sabbath period, they had been waiting, hiding, uh, whatever. And they didn't know that the temple or the, the high priest had actually arranged for this guard to be at the tomb. So they get there, and possibly the first thing they see is this guard. What are they going to do? But then, and as I say, it was the morning after the Sabbath. It was the first opportunity they had. But then we find an angel descended and moved the stone. Now that freaks the guards out. They freeze, so that, that problem dealt with for the short term. Uh, interestingly, I just mentioned as well, it does say the angel of the Lord descended. Now, if you're uh, uh, attentive, you'll find that phrase in the Old Testament refers to, generally speaking, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. That's not the case here. It's not the angel, it's an angel, Okay, uh, if you look in the Greek. It's not a definitive article. So again, the guards now freeze in fear, uh, and the women are encouraged by this angel to take a look inside. But Jesus' body obviously is not there. Another angel reminds them what Jesus said. Now, I say another angel because we're actually told um, that it was a young man. But because of what's said, uh, I'm of the opinion to believe that this was actually an angelic being rather than just another young man. And that could be a point that could be debated. But either way, they're then told to go and tell his disciples. This, this young man has knowledge of conversations that have taken place between the disciples and Jesus, which is why I think uh, this is an angel that we're speaking of. But told to tell his disciples and Peter. Notice that Peter is not included amongst the disciples. Very interesting point. Because if you remember what uh, Peter has said, back in John 18 we read, Then said the damn, this is around that camp, that fire uh, by the uh, high priest at the high priest's house as Jesus is being tried. Then said the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? And what did Peter say? I am not. Peter denies that is a disciple of Jesus. What did Jesus say in Matthew 12? He said, For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. The power of words is very important. We sometimes so glibly say things without actually thinking of the full import of what we're saying. We'll see Jesus rectify. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. We'll see at the end of the gospel Jesus restore Peter. Just some of the other key points moving on. The woman then fled from the tomb. I mean, this experience must have been absolutely incredible for them. Again, the whole experience was part of why they leave, but also because the guards. Now, the guards are frozen, but that wasn't going to stay that way for long. So they obviously just get up and get out of there. Uh, The guards, incidentally, go to the high priest and report back on these things. We'll look at that in a little while. The ladies then head back to where the disciples were. But as they're leaving, they seem to encounter... We're told two men. Now, we could again do the same as I just did a moment ago and say, well, these two men were probably angelic beings. 
except it's Dr. Luke that is the one that tells us they were men. Now, Dr. Luke checked and rechecked all his information before putting it in his Gospels, and he tells us they're men. So who were they? Why were they there? Two in Scripture is the number of witness, and there may be a clue in that. Now, this is just conjecture, but I share it with you for what it's worth. Back in Deuteronomy 15, uh, we're just told there, at the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. So for something to be established, for something to be ratified, if you like, there had to be two witnesses for it. Who was there actually to witness the resurrection of Jesus? Arguably we could say there, there may have been angels at the time. Just conjecture, I suggest that maybe there were two men actually there to witness the resurrection of Jesus. Just carry on. In Acts chapter 1 verse 10, we find again two men, by Dr. Luke who records this, in bright apparel. So it seemed to be a very similar situation. And also in Luke chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we read in Dr. Luke's account in, verse 9, in chapter 9 verse 30, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah. But notice it's two men, specifically we have who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Luke twice tells us these were two men. But the interesting thing is that these characters appear in glory, in bright apparel, we could say. And what do they do? They're speaking of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Why did Jesus call Moses and Elijah to have this very special meeting to talk about his death and what was going to happen in Jerusalem. What was the purpose of it? Just give them information? Or did Jesus have a particular role and a particular function for them? Possibly, possibly, the role and the function was that they were to be there as witnesses of this event. We carry on. Mary, again being much younger, seems to arrive back to the disciples first. You know, I'm sure we've, we've all been there. You, know, you send the young ones on ahead. Go on, off you go. But then the other women seem to arrive as well. Mary gives her version of the events. Uh, no doubt the other women come in and fill in all the blanks as, as young Mary's been trying to explain it away and probably tripping over her words. Peter and John then decide they're going to go and investigate this. It's a dangerous mission, of course, because they didn't know that the guards had left. The women had fled before the guards had then left themselves. So, and, and possibly they may have even left a guard at the tomb still. So they're going back to this place. They don't know what to expect, but nevertheless they go. John, who never actually mentions his own name when he's talking about himself in the Gospel, does happen to make the point that he can run faster than Peter. Now, again, remember that John's writing this now as a very old man. People have often said that the older you get, the better you were. And, And it could well be that, I mean, Peter's not around anymore. Peter's been dead by this time for around about 30 years. Peter can't answer back. He can't contest that John was faster at running than he was. So... John slips this in here, you know, I was faster, I got there first. And John looks in, he sees the grave clothes. But interestingly, John doesn't go in, probably because of Jewish mindset, he didn't want to enter into this grave and defile himself for the feast. Peter doesn't care about that kind of stuff. He just goes straight in. Okay, no discern about defilement now for him. And I think also in that is the fact that Peter's now at the lowest point in his life. He's denied Jesus. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. And maybe he even got that message. You know, Peter is at the real rock bottom. For him, 
<laughs> why worry about being defiled for the feast? You know, the most important thing in his life to that point, he's just blown by denying Jesus Christ. And nothing else left to lose. Now Peter notices, and John records this napkin that's been placed to one side. Now, I got this as an email. I think some of you may have got the same email. I'm going to share it with you because I just think it's interesting. And for the sake of the recording, for those that are listening, I just think this is curious. I don't know whether it's, it's factual. I haven't been able to verify it. Um, but the question is, why did Jesus fold the linen burial cloth after his resurrection? Is it significant? Well, one opinion says, yes, it is very significant. In order to understand the significance of the napkin, you've got to understand a bit about the Hebrew tradition of that day, which apparently was that uh, a folded napkin had to do with a master and a servant. And every Jewish boy would apparently have known this tradition. When the servant set the dinner table for his master, he made sure that it was exactly the way the master would have it be. The table would be furnished perfectly, and the servant would then just wait out of sight until the master had finished eating. The servant wouldn't dare to touch the table until the master had finished. Now, if the master had finished eating, he would rise from the table, wipe his fingers, mouth, and clean his beard, and etc. They would throw the napkin then into this pile onto the table. The servant would then know it's time to clear the table. Uh, in those days, the napkin, the wadded napkin, meant I'm finished. You know, something just thrown onto the table, undone. But if the master got up from the table and folded his napkin and laid it beside his plate, the servant wouldn't dare to touch the table because. The folded napkin meant I'm coming back. I just think that's quite provocative. I don't know whether it's true. I don't know whether it's been able to be verified, but I'll just share it with you for what it's worth. But either way, it does, again, cause a major problem to anybody that try and argue that well, actually somebody came and stole the body. So somebody came in the middle of the night, took a body from before some guards that were watching the tomb, and they actually bothered to strip the body and then fold the grave clothes up. Come on. That just doesn't follow any kind of reason or human logic at all. We're told that John believed when he'd seen these things. We didn't believe in the resurrection at this point, um, but he simply believed that the body had been taken. Peter and then John, at that point, there's nothing else for them to do, so they then return home. We're told that women remain. Now, the guard at this point would seem to have disappeared. They've obviously gone off to do their errand. But Mary, once again looks into the tomb and now in the tomb she sees these two angels asking why are you weeping i don't know about you but i think that's one of the the, the strangest questions in history given the circumstances given all that she's gone through over the last few days you know women are often far more emotional than men given this circumstance given this situation it's very natural for mary to be weeping and yet they ask this question, why are you weeping? I think there's a lot in this. In Romans 8:28, we know the scripture. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. When something goes horribly wrong, when something happens in your life that you don't understand, when you're looking into a situation that doesn't make sense, when you're trying to figure out where is God, why weep? Do you not believe that all things work together for good? The important verse there is, and we know, that Paul tells us. A few verses earlier, Romans 8.18. Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. These events, these problems that we experience in life, so often bring us to that point of weeping. Lord, where are you? Mary's confused. Where, what have they done with the body of the Lord? Where is the Lord? 
Well, when we're in that situation saying, where is the Lord? It's like the angel saying to us, why are you weeping? Is not this the same Lord that has been with you, that you've seen through these three and a half years, the same one that you, Mary wasn't in the boat, but she'd have heard the account that Jesus walked on the water to Peter. She would no doubt have heard, if she hadn't herself witnessed, the feeding of the 5,000. All these other incredible miracles, the blind men receiving their sight, the lepers being healed. Why is she weeping? Was Jesus not still the same? Again, it comes from our lack of faith and our doubting. Oswald Chambers says, it's only the loyal soul who believes that God engineers circumstances. We take such liberties with our circumstances, we do not believe God engineers them, although we say we do. We treat the things that happen as if they were engineered by men. Well, that's what Mary was doing here. She assumed this has all been done by men. She didn't stop to think this was what God was doing. To be faithful in every circumstance means that we have only one loyalty, and that is to our Lord. Suddenly God breaks up a particular set of circumstances and the realisation comes that we have been disloyal to him, not recognising that he had organised them. We never saw what he was after. And that particular thing will never be repeated all the days of our life. The test of loyalty always comes just there. If we learn to worship God in the trying circumstances, he will alter them in two seconds when he chooses. And two seconds later, As Mary walks out of that tomb, Jesus reveals himself to her and he says, Mary. And all of a sudden, she sees her Lord. Interestingly, nothing had changed apart from her perception. Everything in the circumstances were the same. Same people around this this person that she perceived to be the gardener. Suddenly she realized it's her Lord. The only thing that had changed is her perception. This is one of the things that prayer does for us. Prayer... I've heard somebody say once before, um, prayer doesn't so much change things as to change us. Now, clearly we know that prayer does change things, but I think that the principle is very important there, that it changes our perspective. It gets us to look at something from God's perspective. It takes us out of our um, kind of little zone that we're in. And this is why when Jesus teaches us to pray, he starts by telling us that we should pray, Our Father. Don't pray, give us today our daily bread, to help me with this problem, that problem, all these things I've got to face. No, no, no. Start with our Father. When you start by praying that God is your Father, by the time you get to give us the day our daily bread, actually it's not an issue because you know that God is a loving Father. He'll provide all of your needs. And He's not just a loving Father, He's a Father in heaven. He sees everything. He knows all that's going on. And then we're to pray for His kingdom to come. Forget your own little world. Forget your own little environment. Be praying for His kingdom to come. And by the time we get down, to, it is important, and God cares about our daily lives, give us today our daily bread. Actually, those things that we were going to start our prayer with have paled into insignificance because, Lord, help me with this, help me with that, have actually, no, God's in complete control. I'm praying that God's kingdom will come, not just in the world and globally. I'm praying that God's kingdom will come in my life, that God will have his way. And if this set of circumstances goes the way that I don't want it to, I've got to trust because I'm praying your kingdom come, that God is going to work out that plan as he would. We said before, if there was before the creation of the world, the universe and everything, if you have this private audience with God, and God lays out uh, his plan for your life, and then he says, right, I want you to go and write a plan for your own life, what you would like, all the things that you would have, and you just, this long list of, you know, I want this, I want that, I want this house, I want to live there and move to Spain, and, you know, all these wonderful things. <laughs> you know, all the things that you think would be great for your life. And then you get to lay them on the table and God says, okay, choose either my plan or your plan. What would you choose? 
Well, the only sensible option is to choose God's plan. But what if that comes with pain and suffering and problems? What if that comes with, with things that we just weren't expecting? Well, it's still God's plan. And at the end of the day, we know it's the best plan for our lives because it's God's plan. Why are we weeping? Then it appears that Jesus meets the other women en route. And uh, he bids them to hurry up and tell the rest that he's going to meet them in Galilee. Now, there's this question about why did Jesus tell Mary, don't touch me? And yet the other women seem to touch his feet and everything else. Uh, it's not, I don't think, that because some commentators suggested that Jesus, uh, in between these experiences, ascended to the Father and then came back again. I, I, don't, I don't see that. I don't read that in the text. What I think Jesus is saying is, you know, don't hold on to me now. Don't, don't cling to me now. You've got to get back. There's a job to be done. There's going to be a time for these things later. But for now, get going. Why do they have to get going? Because right at this time, back in Jerusalem, or around Jerusalem, there was a rumour that was starting to circulate. Matthew twenty-eight eleven, picking up, it just says, talking of these guards, behold, some of the watch came to the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. This is the official story. And if uh, this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. Now, this is another reason why I don't think these are strictly the Roman guards, but these are the temple guards, because had they been Roman guards, the, the, the report of Caiaphas or any of the chief priests or whatever here wouldn't have had any way. They would have been dealt with the disciplinary action by Rome. So I think these are the temple guards. And if, if Rome is saying, you know, well, how did you let a Roman uh, crucified prisoner be, be taken or whatever... The high priest is saying, we're going to stand up for you. Your, 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 your temple guards will look after you. You'll be all right. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So the disciples now, there was a price on the head because it was being said that they'd stolen this body. Now, of course, if that were the case, before very long, someone somewhere would have found the body. Somebody would have known that this was the case. And we can go on talking about this. But this just brings us to this incredible fact of history. That of the resurrection. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered unto you first of all that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and then was seen of Peter, and then of the twelve. Now we're, we're given a little bit of information we don't have in the Gospels, that independently, Jesus appears to Peter. Now what took place in that, place in that conversation we can only, only guess at but then of the twelve, and we'll get to that in a little while this evening. After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Now those that have suggested it was just hallucinations. You can't have group hallucinations, it doesn't work. And it's told, of whom the greater part remain unto this present time. It's Paul saying, you know, the people that have saw Jesus, they were eyewitnesses, they're still alive, you can go and ask them the questions. Of whom the greater uh, part remain unto this present, uh, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, that's his own brother as it were uh, another the uh, son of uh, joseph and mary then of all the apostles and then paul says and last of all he was seen of me also as one born out of due time for i'm the least of the apostles then i'm not meet to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god but by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace which he bestowed upon me was not in vain but i labored more abundantly than they all yet not i but the grace of god which was with me Therefore, whether it be I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And this is the key point. Paul goes on to say, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, 
How say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also vain. And you are found false witnesses of God. Because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if it so be that the dead raise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, then your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Paul simply makes a point that if the resurrection didn't happen, we're miserable. We're wasting our time. Our sins aren't forgiven. Those that have gone ahead are perished. The whole of our belief is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've heard it said before that you could disprove any of the, or, or if you could find evidence to prove that the principal leaders of the other world religions did not exist, they would carry on. Because it's built on the, the, the philosophical propositions, the teachings of these people. It wouldn't actually make a great deal of difference to those religions. Yeah, it would shake them up a bit, but they would still carry on. If you could prove that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, Christianity is over. Everything hinges on this one point. Dr. Luke, in the beginning of Acts, and he checked all these details, he tells us himself. He says, to whom he also, to whom Jesus, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Our faith is not a blind faith. It's a faith based on evidence. Interestingly, I have to throw this in here. How many? This is a survey done in America, uh, talking of mainline Protestant clergy, um, and how they stand on, on issues such as biblical infallibility and so on and so forth. There was a survey done of 7,441 ministers. These are ministers, people leading churches, teaching their congregations. And this is the percentage of ministers who answered no. There's a whole list of questions, but just the one for now. Uh, answered no to this particular question. The question is, do you accept Jesus' physical resurrection as fact? of Methodist ministers said they did not believe it's a fact. Well, then their faith is in vain and their loved ones are perished. 35% of Episcopalian ministers said that Jesus' resurrection was not a fact. 33% of American Baptist. 30% of Presbyterian. And 13% of American Lutheran. Now that's America, but I don't think it's a lot different in this country. That's shocking. It's just incredible. Contrary to that, Lord Lyndhurst, uh, who uh, died in 1863, was recognized as one of the greatest legal minds in British history. He wrote, I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. Another chap, Sir Edward Clarke, was also a very respected lawyer. He said, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive, and over and over again in the High Court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. If you want to read the book by Frank Morris on Who Moved the Stone, very interesting book, uh, very, very well written. He started out trying to disprove it, and he was persuaded by the evidence that the resurrection is an established fact of history. It's incredible. And the more you dig into it, the more you have to come to that conclusion, the only option is that Jesus did in fact rise 
from the dead. Now, we all have our own personal testimonies in our lives which will corroborate that. But purely from a historical point of view, we're not dealing here with a blind faith at all. Carry on. Then the same day at evening, so we're moving on now, we've just got out of that, that morning scenario. We're moving on. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. This must have been just incredible. They've had a whole day to talk about the events of that morning and what did the women see. And, you know, you know if it had been just young Mary, they may have just you know, dismissed it. But the other women as well had seen. And then Peter had seen. And then we have two on the road to Emmaus and they come back. And they're telling this incredible account. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there in the midst of them. Notice they were assembled for fear of the Jews. Again, what I said that. These Jews, this story was now circulating that the disciples were wanted men because they were the ones responsible for stealing the body. If they had have done that, do you honestly think they'd have gone to their deaths professing that Jesus rose? Every single one, all bar John, as far as we know, died professing that Jesus rose from the dead. One of them would have cracked, I guarantee you. Under pressure, under torture, not one of them gave up. They went to the end. And if they'd have just stolen the body and hidden it somewhere... They'd have never gone through with it. Not when they start to see their loved ones being killed alongside them and things like this. And we know these records from history. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. They were uh, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father sent me, even so sin are you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive you the Holy Ghost. So important that we understand what's just going on in that little moment there. This is this, if you like, being born again. Jesus had spoken about it back in John 3. Now we find it. Genesis 2.7, God creates the first man, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and look, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now we know that what happens as a result of the fall is, we're told in Genesis 2.17, But the tree of the good, knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And that's exactly what happened. People, critics have said, ah, oh, but they didn't die straight away. Yes, they did, spiritually. Physically, they started dying from that point. Their bodies have been designed, uh, an incredible design that was designed to carry on. From the point of the fall, those bodies start decaying, and they live long, long, long lifetimes, and that gradually decreases through the problems with uh, you know, the genetic code being copied time and time again. But they died at that point. Interestingly enough, in Hebrews 12, we're told, just as God breathed life into that first man, we're told, furthermore, we have our father, uh, we've had our fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and, gave, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits? That's what God is, a father of spirits. And Jesus here breathes his life. And this is an offer that's open to everybody, that we can become born again. That breath of God put into us. And it's not a spirit of our own. It's, it's the Holy Spirit that is birthed in us, that we, we then become uh, filled with the same spirit that was in Jesus. It's, it's just overwhelming. Jesus then says, whoever sins you remit... They are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, just to explain this, this isn't the power for us to go and forgive people's sins as we think is appropriate. What this is, is because obviously only God through Christ can do that. Okay, This is following the giving of the Holy Spirit who was to come and empower them to do the work of ministry. And the disciples were to go out in the power of the Spirit to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. Any who would respond to their teaching, their sins would be remitted. 
But those who rejected the gospel, their sins would be retained. Very, very clear. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, means the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said unto them, We have seen the Lord. Now, if all of your closest buddies told you they'd seen the Lord, all these incredible stories, wouldn't you be a little bit, wow, is it really true? But Thomas flatly refuses. He said, the disciple says, when we've seen the Lord, but he said unto them, except I shall see his hands, uh, in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. He was not there when they'd received the Spirit. The Spirit, we're told, is the Spirit of truth. We're told in 1 Corinthians as well, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. I think it's very interesting. Make a big case of that if you wanted to. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach here thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. Now there's no suggestion that Thomas actually goes through and tries to do this. I think at this point he's so humbled. Thomas said unto him, My Lord and my God. J.W. will try and convince us that Jesus, that Thomas says, my Lord, refers to Jesus, and then turns up to God and says, my God. But that's clearly not what is going on here. Jesus, uh, and John records this for us, uh, that Thomas is saying to Jesus, you are my Lord and you are my God. Because Jesus says to him, next verse, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. Blessed are they, and that includes us. Some people say that seeing is believing. I think it's the other way around. Actually, believing is seeing. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John now gives us, this is like the back cover of John's gospel. If it was, you know, you go on the back of a book, you get the kind of a summary of what the book's all about. That verse there, verse 31. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Okay, and this is John's reason for writing, that we would know that Jesus is God, not that we would have any doubt whatsoever. John makes the point in the opening of his first letter uh, that he was an eyewitness of these things. And he's telling us so that we would know the certainty of it. So now we get to chapter 21 just to close up. Uh, It's not a particularly long chapter in terms of what's there. It's just kind of a postscript that's added on because a lot of commentators would say that really the gospel seems to finish at the end there of chapter 20. But John just gives us this little postscript. And we just read, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. In other words, this is how it happened. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, uh, and Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Now, the seven disciples that are listed there, you'll probably recall we've mentioned before that John seems to deal in sevens, and there's seven disciples here. Uh, The two others probably would have been Andrew and Philip. Uh, That's what the commentators seem to think. Not that it significantly matters. But we then find Simon Peter said unto them, I go a fishing. Yeah, sitting around, nothing to do, let's go fishing. They said unto him, we also go with thee. Then they went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. Now, some commentators will say there's nothing wrong in what Peter's doing here. You know, he was bored. They were probably hungry. They had to eat. They had to find somewhere providing for themselves. Not sure what's going to happen next. So they go out into this boat to fish. Was it a good idea? Was it being obedient? 
is probably a better question. You see, Peter had already left his nets once to follow Jesus. And now we find effectively he's returning to the old life. And I think this is quite significant because he catches nothing. You know, we try going back to the old life and we get nothing. It doesn't benefit us, doesn't prosper us, doesn't help us at all. It just leaves us empty. And that's exactly what had happened here. See, once we are in Christ, we aren't spoiled for any other thing. And that's the way God would have it. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. We should be dead to the world, and the world dead to us. It should have no appeal to us. What are we doing going back to those things? See, from now on, and this is the way it should have been for Peter, the Lord is directing our paths. Peter, I believe, was a little bit concerned about what they were going to eat. They had to get some food, didn't they? Well, did they? You see, again, is that not worrying about today? The whole passage, Matthew 6, deals with that. Uh, a comment by Oswald Chambers on that verse from Matthew. just as immediately we look at these words of Jesus, we find the most revolutionary statement human ears ever listened to. Seek you first the kingdom of God. We argue in exactly the opposite way, even the most spiritually minded of us. But I must live, I must make so much money, I must be clothed, I must be fed. We know what that's like, we do that ourselves, don't we? But the great concern of our lives is not the kingdom of God, but how we are to fit ourselves to live. Jesus reverses the order. Get rightly related to God first, maintain that as the great care of your life, and never put the concern of your care on other things. Take no thought of your life, Jesus says. Our Lord points out the utter unreasonableness from his standpoint of being so anxious over the means of living. Jesus is not saying that the man who takes uh, thought for nothing is blessed, that man's a fool. Jesus taught the disciple has to make his relationship to God the dominating concentration of his life and to be carefully careless about everything else in comparison to that. Jesus is saying, don't make the ruling factor of your life what you shall eat, what you shall, what you shall drink, but be concentrated absolutely on God. Some people are careless over what they eat and drink and they suffer for it and they careless about what they, they wear and they look as though they have no business to look. They are careless about their earthly affairs and God holds them responsible. Jesus is saying that the great care of life is to put the relationship to God first and everything else second. It is one of the severest disciplines in the Christian life to allow the Holy Spirit to bring us into harmony with the teaching of Jesus in these verses. So we carry on. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, Children, have you any meat? They answered him, no. The, the question in the Greek used to imply, you haven't caught anything, have you? And they go, no. You know what it's like? You know, you're like, you know, don't want to admit that, but actually that is true. You know, it, was, it, was the, it was the wrong type of wind or, you know, it was just, you know, we will, we will, give us time. And he said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship and you shall find. Now these, Peter specifically is a trained fisherman, it has been his life. They cast the net, therefore, and they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Now, I've done a bit of a study in this, and I've found out that the fish do not know whether a net is on the left or the right side of a boat. They're not interested. They don't care. In fact, if the fish know the net's there, they'll avoid it. This makes no sense to the natural mind. Now, why the disciples go and do this, you can only start to surmise that maybe they wondered whether this was Jesus already. Because they've been fishing all night and somebody says, okay, bring your net up and six feet that way, drop it down again and you'll, you'll be fine. 
No, you know, go another place on the lake, that makes sense, do something different. You know, wait an hour or two, go back out. But just to drop the net in a different place doesn't make any sense to the natural. Okay, here I think this is Jesus kind of saying to us and to them, you know, have you had enough of doing things your way? Try doing it my way. They've gone out there, going back, as I think, to the things of the old life. They tried it their way. And Jesus is saying, I've had enough of that yet. And I think that's what happens in our lives. You know, I think we get to that point as a, as a Christian that we've followed the Lord, we've given up those things, but we find ourselves migrating back to the old life, the way things were. Not necessarily talking about sin, I'm just talking about a lifestyle and, and we start to uh, calculate things for ourselves. We stop trusting God to provide for us and to do things and engineer our circumstances and we think we've got to get involved again. We become like Abraham, you know, we've got to help God in this little predicament because there's no other way out of it. And we all do that. And God says, okay, have a go. Go fish all night. We need to tie with that. Try doing it my way. And the result is instantly seen. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, being John, said unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fish's coat unto him, for he was naked. The, the implication there, he was just wearing what he was wearing for, for the fishing, not completely naked. Um, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in uh, a little ship, for they were not far from land, uh, but as it were, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. So Peter, the fisherman now, is kind of running to land, wading through the water. They haven't been too far out, leaving his buddies to drag all these fish back. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. And we read, as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and what? Fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus didn't need their fish. We so often strive to do things for God because he needs us to help. There was already fish there. Jesus had already planned to provide them breakfast. So easy it is to look back and say, oh yeah, that's fine, God was in that. But when we're going through it, you know, before breakfast time, they're thinking, what are we going to eat? We've got to do something. No, Jesus already planned it. Everything was covered. They just needed to trust. Jesus already told them, go to Galilee, wait for me. He's going to be okay. But then Jesus says to them, bring the fish which you have now caught. So maybe they added some of those to, the, to this, this, this uh, roast that Jesus is preparing for them. Uh, Simon Peter went up and drew the nets to land full of great fishes, 150 and 3, for all there was so many, yet net was not broken. 153 fish. Commentators made all sorts of things about this. I thought you'd like these. Uh, Cyril of Alexander um, proposed that this represented God and the church. 100 being the number of the fullness of the Gentiles. He draws that from Matthew 18, uh, verse 12. 50 being the remnant of Israel. Not quite sure how he deduces that. And 3 being reflective of the Trinity. So that gets us 153. That's what he reckons. Now, you may think that's clutching at straws. Uh, let's look at what Augustine proposed. 10 being the number of the law. Well, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. 7, the number of grace. Maybe, maybe we could argue. 7 certainly means complete in Scripture, but... Five tends to be more kind of grace, actually, but this is what he's proposing. If you take 10 plus 7, it equals 17. The sum of the numbers from 1 to 17 equals 153. There you go. That's what it means. I, I just, that's, to me, just a little far-fetched. I don't know what it means. I'm sure there is a reason, but on that one, I think we'll wait. Uh, unless Chuck Misler comes up with something, we'll wait until we get to heaven and uh, ask the Lord himself. Then uh, Jesus said unto them, come and dine. You know, that's an invitation that we've all got, to come and dine with him. But it's, again, not a meal that we've done anything to prepare for. He's providing everything. 
And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Uh, we could uh, unravel that more, but we'll move on for now. Jesus then coming and taking bread and gives, um, giving them and fish likewise. Now this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. So when they died, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and from the, the text you'll see in a moment, it seems to be that Jesus takes Peter aside. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? He said unto him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said unto him, Feed my lambs. Now what's going on here? Jesus is saying, Do you love me more than these others, more than these disciples? I think bringing Peter's memory back to what he'd said. If you remember that little boast in the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, Although all shall be offended, yet will I not. And now Peter's denied him. The others didn't deny Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. And Jesus saying, So Peter, do you really love me more than all these? No doubt Peter feeling incredibly small and humbled at this point. And he says to Jesus, you know, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. But interestingly, Jesus uses the word agapeo, which is an unconditional love. Do you love me unconditionally? Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. That's this friendship love. In English, we only have the one word for love. In Greek, it's more expressive. Peter can't quite commit to that which Jesus is asking. Peter's had this reality check on his life now, and he's not prepared to go beyond what he knows he's able to give at this point. But then Jesus, rather than chastening him for this, gives him his commission. Feed my little sheep. That's amazing. You see, at this point, Peter, I'm sure, would have straight away picked up. He'd been there. Uh, We're looking at in John 10, where Jesus was talking about himself being the good shepherd. And all these sheep. And Jesus giving Peter this commission now to look after his little sheep. That's an incredible responsibility. He said unto him the second time, Simon, son of Jonah. You know, this is his full name, isn't it? You know, when somebody calls you by your full name, you know you're in trouble. And Jesus says to him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Same word again, agapeo. He said unto him, yes, Lord, you know all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, feed my sheep. Now we've gone up from little lambs to sheep now so again jesus saying do you love me unconditionally peter saying lord you know that i love you as much as i can love you i love you with with you know this this friendship this deep care for you this brotherly love but peter can't commit to saying i love you unconditionally but now his responsibility is increased this is grace what we don't deserve being given to us but again i believe that peter understood this commission Verse 17, he said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? And we're told Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? Not that three times he said it, but it was what he said the third time that grieved Peter. And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him again, feed my sheep. This time, Jesus condescends. He comes down that level that Peter's prepared to give and he says Peter do you love me as much as you can do you love me with all your heart all you're able to give this phileo love and Peter's grieved because Jesus had to lower the standard to get to where Peter is and Peter says Lord you know that's how I love you I want to give you more but I don't know how to and Jesus is saying that's okay feed my sheep the commission remains the same because you're not doing it in your strength you're going to be doing it in mine. Jesus will take us as we are. He's not seeking perfect hearts, but willing ones. Then we read, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, 
Jesus emphasizing that point. When thou was young, you did gird yourself and walk whither thou wouldest, as you went wherever you wanted to. But when you shall be old, you shall stretch forth your hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spoke he signifying what death he should, uh, by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. You know, it said that early Peter denied Jesus three times. These three times Jesus asked Peter this question and concludes it with this invitation back in. Just as Peter had at the start, Jesus said to him, Follow me. And he became his disciple. Jesus now gives Peter this restoration. And that's what Jesus does. He restores us. It's just incredible. This whole thing, we could just spend weeks and weeks and weeks just digging into these things. I encourage you, you know, go through the study notes, do your own study on these things. Just dig into it more. There's so much blessing to be had here. Then Peter turning about, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved following, uh, which also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, uh, which is he that betrayeth thee? So Peter, or John here referring to the fact that it had been John himself that had been at the supper to lean on Jesus' breast. Peter looks right over his shoulder. So clearly Jesus and Peter have moved away from the group for this conversation. And incidentally, God will do that with us. Very seldom will God chasten you publicly unless it's something very, very serious that affects the body in a big way. And that does sometimes happen. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira are examples of that, and that's very clear. Um, but God will deal with us on a one-to-one basis. Peter's taken to the side and God deals with him. Verse 21, Peter seeing him saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Now Peter's just been told that when he's older, he's going to be stretching out his hands. Effectively, we, we know from history that, that Peter seems to have been crucified upside down on the cross. He, uh, when he was being crucified, he said he's not worthy to die in the same way his Lord died. So the, the Romans thought it would be quite funny to turn him upside down. That's how apparently he died. So Peter's now seeing this and this kind of question, well, what about John? What's going to happen to him? Jesus said unto him, to Peter, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Jesus saying, none of your business. A couple of scriptures to echo that. Romans 14.4 Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yet he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. You know, we're not to judge each other in that respect. You know, if God would do something with one of us and we look at it and it doesn't seem to add up to us, why isn't this? It's none of our business. To our own master we stand or fall. And what God asks of one of us, he may not ask of another. This is from Luke 10, 39, 42. You'll be familiar with this in a second. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving. And came to him and said, Lord, does thou not care that my sister has left me to serve thee alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part, which should not be taken away from her. You know, we look at somebody else, they don't seem to be doing anything from the kingdom, and we get frustrated, we get annoyed. Why aren't they doing this? You know, I'm putting in all this effort, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. We become... Just as we see the situation with Mary and Martha here. Martha was so concerned about doing things. Mary just wanted to be with Jesus. And sometimes it's a case of, what is that to you? Does it matter what that servant does? You know, to our own master we stand or fall. But as a result of this comment that Jesus makes, we've told verse 23, Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Yeah, Jesus did not, John makes it very clear. He says, yeah, Jesus did not say unto him that he shall not die, but if I, will, if, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? 
John, just making the point that Jesus didn't say that I wasn't going to die, but just that, you know, it's none of your business. Don't worry about that. Now, possibly what had added fuel to the fire, and I think possibly the reason John includes this, again, right at the end of the first century, he's writing his gospel now, and he comes to the close. He adds this bit. Because apparently, so history um, seems to, to verify for us, John had tried to, they tried to kill John, the Roman emperor, had put him in his vat of boiling oil, but he'd survived. He hadn't harmed, harmed him at all. Now he had a real problem because John is seen as being this godlike character. What does he do with him? Can't kill him. So they exile him to Patmos. One of those things, why, Lord, why are you letting me go to Patmos? You know, Lord, you just saved me from this vat of boiling oil. I can preach everywhere now. Now John wants to send him, Jesus wants to send him to Patmos. Why? Because he has another mission for him, and that's to receive the revelation. Eventually, John comes back. But clearly, there was this, this kind of uh, these rumors going around about John being indestructible. And John makes a point Jesus didn't say, I'm not going to die. And clearly, we know that John did eventually die. But So, in conclusion, John says, This is the disciple which testifies of these things. It's me. And wrote these things. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. So John brings us to the end. And incredible, there's so much more that I'd love to know from John. I'd love to know what it was like at the foot of the cross, as John's standing there, watching his Saviour dying in his place. John didn't probably fully understand it all, but what was it like? What was it like going on the resurrection morning to the empty tomb? We only get glimpses. So much more. It'd be lovely to hear. Final challenge for us then as we, we go from here, we get to the end of this book now. We've learnt lots, but I think there's a final challenge for all of us. It's, do you love Jesus more than these? More than the person sitting next to you? What does Jesus mean to you? More than these relationships? More than these things, the things that are important to us. Do we love Jesus more than those? More than these works? Are we like Martha, so busy doing things for the kingdom that we've actually forgot to serve the king? The king just wants us to be his. Again, we're told to pray, our father. It's a relationship. Jesus doesn't want us to, the father doesn't want us for the things that we can do for him. Again, Jesus didn't need Peter's fish. He already had his own. If so, if we love Jesus more than all those other things that surround our lives, feed his sheep. Now, you may think that's a, a mission and a, a, a task for those given the gift of teaching, which in one sense, specifically, that is true, it is. And Peter makes the point in his letter that we are to feed the flock of God which is among us, though, talking specifically to, to pastors and elders. But it applies to all of us. All of us have an opportunity to teach, to feed brothers and sisters around us. Become a teacher of his word. And this is what Jesus was talking about, about proclaiming Christ, being the word made flesh, which is the greater works that we were told that we would do in his name, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, proclaiming, bringing glory, showing that Jesus is God through this teaching. It's something that should be a natural overflow. If we love Jesus more than those things that surround our lives, there'll be a natural overflow and we can't help teaching people, feeding sheep. And again, don't look to others. Don't look at the, well, what about them? What about this? What? No, it's not important. It's about you. It's about Jesus. It's about nothing else. Just you and him. Get yourself alone with him. Get on your knees. Let's go back to square one. Peter wasn't able to say, Lord, I agape you. I love you unconditionally. Peter said, I can only go as far as I can go. Jesus said, that's okay. All I want is your heart.
not looking for, for perfect hearts, just willing ones.